Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. All right. Well, welcome to this episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Uh, today, I'm talking with Allison Farron from the Allegheny Land Trust, and hopefully her colleague, Lindsay, as well, who's having some technical difficulty. And we're going to be digging into Allegheny Land Trust and their experience with the City Forest Crediting Program and just uh, mission of the organization as a land trust in the, in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. And um, yeah, just really excited to learn and dig in. And I see Lindsay just hopping in here. So I'm going to admit her as well. So yeah, Allison, do you want to just give your give a brief introduction to yourself and um, Allegheny Land Trust to, to the listeners, and then we can dive in from there? Uh, sure. So Allegheny Land Trust um, is a land conservation nonprofit. We've been around since about 1993, um, so been working uh, in the region for quite a while. We have worked on large conservation projects. Our initial focus was on our regional biodiversity areas, and we have significant land protection um, in those uh, biodiversity areas that were present in the 1990s, but also as they've moved over time. Our mission is to help local people save local land, and we take this <laughs> very seriously. Um, I joined the organization initially after finishing my master's in sustainability um, under the Community Conservation Program, which was a new initiative for us, recognizing that in our post-industrial and boom and bust region, there was an absence of green space in many of the neighborhoods that had been fully built out previously. Um, and so we began working in either protecting existing green spaces that have been recovered by their communities, but they didn't actually have prote protections, um, or helping put new green spaces into certain areas. I was recently um, promoted to the vice president of land conservation um, and something rather fortuitous and started our carbon program in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. hi, hi, Lindsay. Welcome. Um, you're just in time, so um, mm -hmm. we're just doing a quick introduction. Do you want to just uh, introduce yourself for the folks listening to the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Lindsay Dill, and I'm our Allegheny Land Trust Marketing Communications Director. And I apologize for any background noise. I had to move to a coffee shop to find some internet. I uh, joined Allegheny Land Trust in 2014 as a part-time coordinator for their marketing team and. Uh, just fell in love with the mission and have been at the organization ever since. Um, as, as Allison said, you know we've protected more than 3,700 acres across southwestern Pennsylvania since 1993. And that work continues to grow each year as we work on our areas of strategic priority, um, which do include land conservation, land stewardship, environmental education, and as Allison mentioned, where she started her roots with ALT, uh, community conservation. So all of that work, you know, our, our goals are to, you know, protect areas of scenic character, unique biodiversity, uh, you know, areas where we can protect air and water quality and improve those things, um, and areas where we can also uh, connect and create opportunities for outdoor recreation, environmental education. Yeah, and so my role in all of that is to uh, kind of tell the story of the work we do and, and connect people who might be interested in that story to our work. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, great. So over the course of the conversation, some of the threads that I kind of want to pull out is, I mean, there's a number of different things I want to dig into 
more deeply related to just just generally what Allegheny Land Trust, the service that Allegheny Land Trust is providing to the community. I'm particularly interested in talking a little bit more about the relationship between community conservation, um, you know, and sort of like the urban context and the sort of suburban, peri-urban, rural context, and just like how that is evolving over the years and what is exciting and moving there. So that's one theme. I also am really interested in your experience in developing the carbon programs with city forest credits and um, and how that's influenced your strategy moving forward. Is that precipitating a change in how you're thinking about sort of linking funding to land conservation? How is that evolving relationships with local stakeholders and how they relate to funding things? So those are two themes that I'm particularly interested in. I think, um, why don't we start with the first one, which is just sort of the relationship of land conservation from kind of the urban core out into the rural hinterlands or or even wildlands and how you all think about that. Like what, how are you thinking about that strategically? What are some success stories and What's the relationship there in that context in the bioregion, the Allegheny bioregion, specifically around Pittsburgh? Like, what are you learning and what's working uh, in sort of relating be- in zones of density and habitation out into the, the hinterlands, I guess? Yeah, Allison, I don't know if you want me to start. I know Allison has a lot more to say on a lot of these questions or a lot more detail, I think, to kind of get into. Kind of on the overview for Allegheny Land Trust, you know, we are a 501c3 land conservation nonprofit. And as a land trust, we're a nationally accredited land trust. And land trusts nationwide kind of have this classic model of preserving and caring for untouched wild green spaces. Living in an urban county, we have a lot of great wide open space and great wooded space. Um, Many of our trees are young and new because of uh, the sort of resource extraction that's occurred here over the years. So, you know, from our founding in 1993, we were looking at uh, untouched with an asterisk spaces. Um, And there's a lot of great uh, habitat here um, that we've been working on preserving with that traditional land trust model of taking untouched spaces and making sure they remain that way forever so that they can continue the uh, sort of regrowth and, and renaturalization that's already begun. Um, and so those are spaces that are on the order of 100 to 400 acres of land of untouched space. Um, so that's kind of the, the traditional land trust model that we are, are founded on, we continue to work on, and uh, that we have you know many acres that represent that sort of work. But, you know, in the last maybe 10, maybe even 10 plus years um, of our history, we've kind of said, what can we do with this um, land trust model looking at more modern challenges um, or not even modern challenges, but kind of urban city focused challenges. And, and when we say urban, it's, it's in the sense that our county is much more developed and, and has more city centers and main streets and dense communities. So, um, you know, a traditional land trust model protecting 100 acres isn't going to work in the city of Pittsburgh. But uh, neighborhoods in the city of Pittsburgh could still benefit from microgreen spaces, which is kind of where Allison's work picks up. So we've, we've sort of moved from, you know, taking a traditional land trust approach to finding untouched land and making sure it continues to serve uh, the best way that it can. Um, and we've said, okay, how can we do that on smaller scales as well? Because those impacts can be felt, um, you know, on anything from 0.0 
two nine acres up to yeah the 460 plus acres of uh you know a green space like dead man's hollow which is on paper protect. so i think allison has a bit more in the in the details so i'll let allison continue yeah that matches well with sort of also our evolution of locating properties and looking at the criteria that we've been looking at um traditionally we were based largely in the natural heritage areas that were assessed um, right about when ALT was founded in the county. But we've really advanced um, how we have combined things like GIS mapping and attributes that are really important to us. So not just the natural heritage areas anymore, but are there streams that have you know high quality or kind of medium quality that we could help improve and restore by protecting properties strategically in that watershed or within our urban and, and peri-urban work is this the last green space in a rapidly developing neighborhood or i think churchill is a highlight here um any previously uh a thriving westinghouse community there was um a country club called Churchill Valley. Um, they had a large meeting space and a golf course, um, and it was a members join uh, club traditionally. And I don't know, I've heard of so many people, my my um, husband's family is from the area, and they talk about, oh, I had my problem there. Oh, I had my problem there. You know, for just ages, everybody knew the site. Um, but the country club kind of went defunct. But the golf course was still relatively open. It had some meadow trying to reform. There were edgewoods coming in. Um, and the community said, hey, this is an amazing green space. It's fairly large. There are neighborhood parks in this area, but we have this great opportunity to protect a property adjacent to a stream that we know has some, some mining issues and some other things that maybe could use some conservation. And so um, we're really looking at all levels because one of the other projects that we've done recently was uh, 0.028 acres <laughs> um, of a community garden uh, in the Wilkinsburg borough where they really have an absence of parks, but there is a strong focus on community gardens and producing food in uh, our food apartheid areas. I'll pause for questions. Well, there's a couple of questions there. So maybe for uh, listeners, do you mind just digging in a little bit deeper to that term food apartheid and talking um, more about the role of a land trust model and shifting in that specific dynamic, um, which is maybe less just aesthetic, but also is really kind of at the core of kind of a healthy community, food access, et cetera? Definitely. Um, so food apartheid is the uh, preferred term over food deserts and other things because um, there is intention in that it was purposeful. You know, the stores were abandoned and or the zoning didn't support it. Um, and so we formed a partnership with Grow Pittsburgh, which is our local gardening nonprofit that fosters school gardens and other things and brings that food production expertise that ALT is lacking in. Um, so we formed a joint venture agreement um, to leverage their gardening expertise and make sure these community gardens, which are largely in and almost exclusively in these food apartheid neighborhoods within Pittsburgh, it's in a city, but where grocery stores haven't been present for some of them upwards of 50 years, 
during, you know, those late 50s boom cycle that you saw post-World War One. And so we're helping those communities protect those gardens because most of them, due to their large amount of vacancy, are now experiencing extreme and rapid, and we're talking two to five years, rapid gentrification in in certain neighborhoods. Um, I'm thinking, Lindsay, of East Liberty, where significant portions of the neighborhood were just flat out raised and, and redeveloped. And so we actually have a couple of community gardens adjacent to those remaining residential pockets within those neighborhoods now um, that are really, you know, experiencing change from you know, owned single family and young families to renters, but the renters still want to garden and have access to those amenities. Um, the small residential properties don't really have yards and, and green spaces to participate in. So we're we're working on those relationships in, in those neighborhoods. And that's our role here. Um, is that access and protection to ensure that with these boom and bust cycles of rapid development and then abandonment that everyone here is working to try and stabilize those situations, but it cannot be guaranteed um, that there are these small green spaces that have good soil that are able to provide ecosystem services and or these spaces for community gardens um, and whatever ecosystem services are really needed for that area. Lindsay, it looks like you have something you want to add in there. Yeah, I just get really excited about that portion of our work because I think, you know, that one of the interesting things is, um, again, kind of how we're uh, applying a traditional um, land trust model to these kind of micro scales. Um, you know, one, th one benefit of a land trust is when we conserve land, we conserve it forever. It is written into the bylaws. It is, you know, part of our organization's, you know, trustworthiness. That is how we work in traditional scales by saying, if we conserve this 400 acre green space, it will be that forever. And that's a promise. And so when, you know, Allison's talking about conserving food spaces on, on a city scale, you know, this might be within um, not necessarily the main street of a neighborhood, but at least within within the core. So that word forever is definitely still a benefit, but something that is, you know, taken with more more gravity and communities need to consider. So typically, you know, our slogan is helping local people save local land. We're coming in at the request of communities or, you know, we're approaching them and saying, hey, this is kind of our tool belt. These are our superpowers. You know, what are you trying to do and how can, you know, we kind of serve that? So, yeah, as communities are saying, you know, we've been growing on this space for years, it's city owned, it's tax delinquent, it's owned by someone who hasn't been here in a long time, but we've worked this land, we've remediated the soil, we've started growing food, um, teenagers come here and learn how to farm, we eat from this, you know, there's just so much that they provide. And so, um, you know, we're, we're saying we can conserve that forever and communities really have to consider like, is that forever something that we want in this specific space? So sometimes the answer isn't always yes, but often um, it is yes. And, and it's just, you know, a huge relief for people who have worked the land for years and years to make it what it is and make it, you know, a food growing space walkable from, from their own homes. So. Cool. Yeah, it's exciting. My mind is kind of churning, you know, because Allison, you'd mentioned sort of the broader suite of ecosystem service services that are provided beyond carbon, right, which we'll get to a little bit later in the conversation, in that there's starting to be a movement in our society to value the sort of removal or storage services of a landscape for carbon specifically. But we also see glimmers. I was just up in Montreal for the biodiversity COP um, in which there was a landmark agreement amongst um, all of the signatory 
countries um, uh, note the United States is not part of the biodiversity convention, which is really annoying. <laughs> Could rant about that for a little bit, but um, nonetheless, it's really exciting. The pros and cons of this, there seems to be, there's starting to be this sort of growing um, awareness amongst businesses, amongst decision makers, policymakers, governments, that ecosystems, intact ecosystems or regenerating ecosystems provide this enormous value. And we can we can sort of calculate that economic value in a community beyond the carbon sequestration. And, and oftentimes the ecosystem services coming from a piece of property that are going to be more um, tangible to a local community are obviously not the carbon ecosystem services because that's a global problem. Climate is a global problem, but there are local problems, water, pollinator habitats, um, habitat for local endangered species, these sorts of things. So I'm curious if, you know, in your work at Allegheny Land Trust, if the thought of around quantifying and maybe at some point monetizing those other ecosystem services as a funding stream to conserve properties, you know, and 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 this is a question for the whole spectrum from from the urban core all the way out. Is that a conversation that you all are having yet? Um, is it a conversation you're interested in having? I think there's definitely a balance there. There's always a concern when you monetize nature that you would also commodify it and suddenly you're selling something that really should have been protected. But I think um, to your point, that is exactly what drew us to the city forest uh, carbon plus program specifically because it is carbon, but it is also certified water sequestration and certified air quality improvement. So you are actually monetizing those services with this particular carbon credit um, beyond what you might be experiencing, you know, using the eye tree and calculating it out for singular large trees. Because in our region, um, even before we were experiencing elements of climate change, we developed right up against these small community streams or, or you know, historically our industry has been coal-based and steel industry. And so we have extremes of air quality, partly because of inversion issues. So what we have here in Allegheny County and our, in our greater region is that we're actually a plateau and the rivers have carved down into valleys. And so when we experience an inversion, we have an air mass that sits above the plateau and actually caps all of the poor air quality particulates in the valleys with us. And until that air moves off, we have extremely poor air qualities. Usually we exceed like Los Angeles and California, which are traditionally associated with poor air quality. So for us, that was actually the draw because all of those tiny creeks now in the neighborhoods that were very picturesque are now flash flooding and causing dangerous conditions for many of our residents or that, that flashiness to our extreme and heavy rainfall is overwhelming our stormwater systems. And we have a massive combined sewer overflow issue, like many previously developed, you know, strong, strong developed cities that have been around for over a hundred years. Um, and so we're dumping sewage into our rivers every time it rains. So we really like the city forest carbon plus credit because it's not just carbon for us. It is water. It's always water and always air quality. And it brings those three things together with that ecosystem service and recognition. It lets us tell more of a story 
around our carbon efforts. Lindsay, I want to make sure you can add in as well. Oh yeah, I think you captured captured it all, and, and definitely that that fine line of you know financing conservation through its benefits, uh, and then also being wary of uh, commodifying it in, in similar ways that we have done in the past that have caused the harm that we're working to undo today. So um, yeah, I mean it's definitely something we talk about in storytelling. Um, so I can't speak to you know the finance of it with our organization, but when we're working with communities, you know when they come to us wanting to conserve it for water issues or for recreation issues, we're also underscoring the other um, kind of benefits that, that it provides. So I guess on an individual scale or on a foundation scale, you know, when we're funding specific projects, we definitely look into, you know, how many gallons of rainwater that's absorbing each year can, that keeps it from overwhelming uh, certain watersheds or um, things like that. And, and then also looking at how many pounds of carbon are being sequestered um, using kind of calculators and considering how much, you know, tree canopy is there. And then, yeah, we, we utilize tools like iNaturalist and um, eBird uh, and, and just local citizen scientists to say, you know, these are the specific species found here. Um, and by conserving this land, you know, you're specifically conserving these these habitats. Cool. Do you also do like heat island calculations or think about that related to the urban um, canopy? Is that something that is sort of like has entered into your toolkit? We are actually working in partnership with uh, Tree Pittsburgh, and there's a Pittsburgh Tree Canopy Alliance, which has been looking at those historically divested neighborhoods also have the least amount of tree canopy. That was um, several studies that have been done in our city directly correlate. So similar to our uh, community garden model, we are also partnering with organizations that are restoring the tree canopy. So we are not the sole group. We have um, a lot of nonprofits in our area where we work in partnership with each other and leverage everyone's strengths um, to make sure that everything is being properly addressed that's appropriate for the community, that's desired by the community, and things are going in where they should. But yes, we are factoring in or considering heat islands, um, partly as, as Lindsay mentioned, just those inter, interspersed micro green spaces and how they can provide some relief um, related to that. I wanted to sort of just reference our Heelcrest uh, green property, which is within its neighborhood in Garfield. It's actually on a little bit of a high point. And when uh, with its canopy cover and shade, it catches a breeze in the summertime. And if you stand outside the property on the street and then walk into the property, there is a noticeable like 10 degree difference there. Um, and because of the incredible steep topography of our city, we're in some places steeper than San Francisco. Um, walking to these spaces is very difficult. So we're also looking at heat islands and these micro green spaces to ensure that heat relief is available to all of our neighbors within our areas. Yeah, cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, so now I want to kind of turn our conversation towards the City Forest Credit Program and, and your experience with it. One of the things that I'm most curious about is, have you seen, Is it has it been a useful tool um, yet in building or reinforcing local funding relationships where maybe businesses want to sort of take climate action or are paying attention to new guidance around ESG reporting and, and carbon reporting 
that's kind of emerging as the new norm to bring carbon on as a liability emissions on as a liability and start to kind of offset that are you seeing conversations evolve are you seeing this as an important tool for fundraising for land conservation yet is there glimmers of that how how is it informing or changing your relationship with funders for for Allegheny Land Trust um we entered into the Kerman realm just a few years ago, so we do have um, some experience, although I would say we're not as experienced as others. I want to I want to start with sort of the funding aspect. So as we've been talking about within our county and community, um, we are rapidly building out. Um, when we say urbanizing, we use the U.S. Census definition, which is largely based on population density. So Almost all of Allegheny County is now within those definitions um, as urbanized or near urbanized areas. With now this absence or this restriction of the amount of available land for development, what we're seeing is an increase in the price for remaining spaces in some of our areas. And so one of the benefits and our entrance into carbon crediting was partly because of um, our additionality need for gap financing for some of these projects. So protecting beforehand doesn't work because we do have to own the property before credit it through the carbon program with City Forest. And City Forest has been an excellent mentor in understanding and knowing how to complete all of the carbon crediting requirements, um, including answering specific questions. Um, so our our work is only on new projects because we want to make sure we have strong additionality uh, claims for each of our projects. But we have not had any credits purchased specifically for ESG functions, although our very first sale was to Cloverly, um, which is an API that actually helps uh, e-commerce businesses offset the shipping for their customers by using carbon credits that are closest to their project. Um, so Cloverly was great. And obviously Regen was is our single largest purchaser for the, the two more recent transactions. Although um, we were using an, uh, Blue Source, which is an environmental markets broker, and they did have some other small sales to businesses that are looking to include carbon crediting or these impact sort of investing items that are much closer to their operations. Like we talked about, carbon is usually considered on a global scale, but there is demand with an increase in accountability um, by customers and stakeholders that businesses start protecting or offsetting closer to their operations. And so we are seeing more and more interest in carbon crediting in our work because it is closer to certain operations. And that's why we've also partnered up with like the Great Lakes Impact Investing Platform. They co-market our credits and our projects with us. Lindsay, I want to let you jump in too. Yeah, I mean, I think you have much, much more to say on this specific program. So I don't have too much to add to this. Yeah, I know Allison's been working really hard to ensure that the carbon credit programs we're becoming involved with are legitimate programs, are doing uh, good work because that's, you know, something that we're, as well as many others uh, are definitely wary of and we want these these credits to be you know meaningful and actually impactful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the reasons we really love the City Forest Credit program is because of the ability to link 
land conservation and regeneration activities with a local context and local action and local stakeholders. I love that Cloverly sort of has been a purchaser for supply chain offsetting and mitigation for, I think that's great. I mean, the more that we can sort of be linking, directly linking positive impacts with the the costs of doing business and sort of localizing that and sort of weaving those actions together. I think that's a enormously powerful narrative. So um yeah, that's really exciting. Do you want to talk a little bit about specifically sort of take a moment to talk a little bit about um I think it's the Buena Vista Heights um project that um, specifically is the one that's listed right now in the regen marketplace. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on there on that piece of property. And, you know, where where is it in, in the context of sort of the, the larger urban and peri-urban matrix? Why is it an important piece of property? What's going on there? And what are some of the other ecosystem services that are being preserved because that forest is being preserved? Buena Vista... Um is a really, really interesting project because um, when we talk about protecting properties from development, uh, we actually purchased that particular piece of property from a developer that already had it fully platted out for um, a suburban homes development within that area. But um, as there always is in these situations, um, it is basically right above an older historical neighborhood that is next to two bodies of water that floods dangerously. And in fact, flash flood washed out the road completely a few years ago. And so as a first project for carbon crediting, the other thing is in that sort of southern corner of Allegheny County, you still have industry that is very active in that area um, against the rivers and uh, some historical mining and other things. So when we're looking at offsetting direct impacts of carbon, air quality, and water sequestration, this project is really well cited for all of those things. So Buena Vista um, is experiencing some restoration of the forest. It was previously a family farm uh, in, you know, up through the 40s and has regrown naturally without any intervention, um, which can be good and bad in some cases. So you do have a lot of native species in there, but you do have some invasive species. Um, and there was some loss when the emerald ash borer came through as far as health of the forest. But we are starting to work with some of the Boy Scouts and other local organizations, uh, the Game Commission supplying trees, to consider the health of the forest and the overall health in relation to ensuring that our 40-year commitment to carbon sequestration is protected. And so um, we do allow some recreation, but really we're focused here on those ecosystem services. Lindsay, do you have anything to add? Um, just a little bit about um, development, you know, again, as a traditional land conservation nonprofit, you know, we are working on conserving land um, and a project like this where homes were planned, you know, our county, uh, you know, over a 10 year period hasn't seen uh, population growth spiking. Um, and yet our development rate continues to outpace that population growth rate, um, which is at best flat and mostly still kind of on the decline. So, you know, when communities call us in and are saying, you know, we want to see this land conserved, it is also kind of 
to to stop this kind of inappropriate pace of development that's not really meeting uh, a need of creating more affordable housing or anything like that. So, um, you know, in this project, it's kind of a win-win-win all around what we're being able to conserve uh, green space that is close to the homes of these communities, you know, uh, absorb more rainwater to keep those flash flooding issues from becoming even worse. And, you know, it's also just appropriately kind of balancing the development that is kind of eating up and sprawling uh, our region even more each year. Yeah, I'm curious, this is sort of a tangential question, but do you see, do you see a difference in price with properties around conserved properties? Like once a property gets properly preserved and as an easement, you know, has a perpetual easement is incorporated into land trust. What does that do to adjacent property values in the communities that are sort of like around a core conservation property? Allison, you may remember the specific numbers. I can't recall the rates, but um, it does uh, in our experience, especially around uh, larger green spaces, uh, we see that the mention of and the permanent conservation of lands impacts uh, the home value of adjacent uh, homes. So it, yeah, it does uh, kind of increase that home value. Um, so to us, that, you know, that it's a really complicated question because for many, it's it's a benefit if you're already a homeowner. Um, and for some, it is not. But, you know, that is one reason why we do work with communities to ensure this is something they want. And, you know, for us, largely, we see that as, as a benefit. Um, a lot of the communities that we're working with in the uh, suburban and, and rural communities are, you know, homeowners looking to kind of preserve all of those things we talked about, air quality, water quality, scenic habitat, um, and yeah, the ability to continue to absorb rainwater above flash flooding communities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So tell me a little bit about what's coming next related to the relationship between Allegheny Land Trust and City Forest Credits. Do you have more projects um, sort of underway to to bring into carbon markets um, coming, you know, in the next uh, in the next year or two? We do actually. Um, our Burkle Woodlands project, which um, is located in the northern part of the county, was actually just uh, certified and our credits were issued. So that's uh, visible on our website. This is a smaller project, but as we were talking about sort of those last undeveloped green spaces, this very much, um, although near to our Audubon property, was again available for development is at an interchange. Um, So we're seeing it buffering that community from the effects of the highway that was put in a few years ago. Um, And the family actually, in this case, was really interested in the preservation of the property and the woods. But due to its location, um, the expense of this project was quite high and we did have a gap in financing. So again, for new projects only, we consider carbon crediting. We have another project in the pipeline now that Burkle Woodlands is certified uh, that we'll start working on up in Butler County. Um, But it's too early to mention that project specifically, but we do have a pipeline and are working on about one project a year right now for certification. Um, We do screen projects pretty carefully to before we decide to put a carbon project on them to make sure that they would be eligible um, and that there's a balance of, you know, financial gain for the amount of staff time or work that might need to be included in that particular project, as we only have really myself and one other staff person um, available to do 
the project certification documentation. Lindsay, did you want to add on verbal? No, I don't have too much to add to that. Um, yeah, it was definitely a, a big uh, community lift on that one. And um, we have a history of conservation in that community. So people are already very familiar with, with the space. Um, and we weren't in the sort of community organizing a portion of that project talking about carbon. But I think those communities will be very kind of excited and proud to hear about the conservation impacting that sort of carbon aspect of our work. Yeah, cool. Well, so I guess my last question is, where do you see the future of kind of payment for ecosystem services versus donations versus grant, like governmental grants related to building a healthy kind of conservation, preservation and regeneration funding stream for a context like yours, you know, what's, what's, what's moving, what's evolving and, and what are you seeing make sense just in terms of like the time that you need to devote to, to like each one of those is going to be an investment of staff time, obviously, and community engagement and project development, you know, how are you seeing the mix of, of how you're raising funds and deploying them to continue the mission moving forward? It's been very exciting to add the carbon crediting program uh, to our overall financial health um, to balance out. We do have some great foundations in our region that support our work. Um, but as we've seen with COVID-19, the need just increases in, in so many ways. And so um, being able to balance out or have existing match available for state grant programs really just strengthens our portfolio and increases our ability to consider the mix of funding needed for any particular project. Um, and so we can balance out our request to the community versus what state grant programs we may be trying to access versus potential requests to foundations. Um, and it's really strengthened our portfolio by diversifying our income sources. Um, so we're not just a grant dependent nonprofit. We are now able to produce some of our own income, um, which has been great. We are looking at other ecosystem services, not just carbon crediting, but some stream and wetland restoration projects as well, um, because there's a lot of wetland impact in our region um, down in the far southwest corner where we have a lot of oil and gas development still. Um, so there's been some requests to consider those types of projects. So again, more ecosystem services, financial models um, present there, and we're still exploring quite a bit of that. Uh, Lindsay, do you wanna talk more about the sort of financial mix? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we've always had a multi-pronged approach to fundraising for land conservation projects, as well as, you know, our stewardship program to care for the land as a responsible neighbor, um, and also for our environmental education team that provides all ages education all over the region. So we're always trying to look for ways to keep our, our funding sustainable, which means having those multiple prongs. So um, like you said, and like Allison said, um, you know, we work with, you know, state level grants, um, sometimes federal funding in some cases. Um, we work with local grants, seek out private foundation funding, uh, try to gain corporate sponsorships for different programs. Um, and then, of course, the, the community fundraising portion. Um, typically, the state level grants do require that we have uh, community funds raised. So there needs to be a matching dollar amount. Um, I think what's interesting adding these ecosystem services to our funding mix is um, not only does it kind of 
again, create more of a base of a sustainable multi-pronged fundraising approach that also uh, doesn't require um, the community match. Um, and as much as you know, our communities are very passionate and, and want to give, we're not always working with communities that have a ton of capacity, nor do we want to you know, uh, raid the pockets of all the communities or anything like that uh, when helping them conserve uh, local land. So adding in ecosystem services like carbon crediting and the others that were you know, kind of getting our feet wet and starting to explore uh, it kind of creates this funding superpower that helps us uh, work with more and more communities, just, you know, regardless of their kind of financial capacity to, to give to projects like this that will ultimately benefit generations today and generations to come in, in those areas. So we're just really yeah. kind of excited by the prospect. Yeah. And, and one of the other things I want to point out, Gregory, is um, the issue of scale. So one of the reasons why we particularly uh, wanted to access the city forest program is one 40 years for preservation is a much more comfortable number <laughs> for I think most people considering traditional forest carbon models require a 100 year protection. Um, we've been around since 1993, but 100 years is still a long time. But the other thing that we're experiencing is, as we alluded to earlier in our conversation, um, we don't have 5,000 acres to protect here. We have 100 acres, 50. So we are at such an intermediate scale that many of the traditional ecosystem service models or even large federal grant programs are not accessible to us. And so City Forest and the Carbon Crediting Program has also helped us kind of fill that scale gap where we're seeing a greater demand for our services, but our eligibility for certain, especially federal grant programs or even some state grant programs, we're just not meeting the requirements either due to scale or our size or our budget is too high and they, they need somebody with a, a lower overall operating budget. So we're running up against some walls here and, and that's why City Forest has been great to kind of help us also fill that gap of eligibility from some of the traditional conservation programs that other groups with larger scale projects are able to access. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's such a important thing that the City Forest Credit Program has done to open up that stream of funding for small forests in and around urban contexts. It's very, um, it's very exciting. It's an important piece of the puzzle, I think. Well, I'm really grateful for both of your time and super excited that we have uh, credits from, from your land trust live on Regents Marketplace. And yeah, um, thanks so much for joining and sharing a little bit about uh, what's moving at Allegheny Land Trust. Thank you so much for the time, Gregory. It was great to get to kind of talk about the work. Yeah, yeah. So happy holidays. And um, I look forward to, to being in touch and, and seeing what else we can do together. Absolutely. Thank you, Gregory. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. Thank you. Oh. Thank you.